three, two, one. Here we go. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Welcome to the Virtual House Church. Sorry for the slight delay in getting started here. Had a little bit of technical difficulty that we, I think, got all ironed out now. So if you're new here to the Virtual House Church, you can go to virtualhousechurch.com. That's virtualhousechurch.com. Let me switch this over here. And uh, that's our primary website. And this is so this website's been around for a while, since about 2012, I think. It's in the process of getting an upgrade so uh, a fair amount of these links will now take you to the new website uh, such as if you click click on uh, who we are that tells you uh, a little bit about <coughs> excuse me Sheila and I um, our virtual house church store you could go there and check out the calendar if you want to get on the Hebrew calendar um, it's overlaid on top of the Gregorian so you can uh, still look at it and be familiar with it you know our, our months the way we have them <coughs> excuse me um, just with the Hebrew kind of overlaid on top of it and gives you some instruction about uh, Sabbath and feasts and stuff like that. And so you can click on that for the free PDF that you can uh, view and or download. If you'd like a printed copy and you live in the United States, click on the domestic button. And international uh, orders, you can click on the button below that. Uh, then we have the calendar that Juan Carlos put together. And uh, it's a little bit different uh, from the one that Kevin and Amanda put together. So, you know, we, again, we make no claims to understanding everything we're all students just like you guys are so um we are entertaining other ideas and uh, uh juan carlos has some different ideas here in his calendar you can check out and if you want to have the workbook to go along with the studies uh, you can get them typically faster through amazon although they haven't been all that fast lately <laughs> uh, or the postal service hasn't anyway somebody's slowing things down but you can get them individually by clicking on the buttons below the workbook there, and it takes you right to the Amazon. If you'd like to save a little bit of money, you can get all five of them together and get them through us. When we have the inventory, uh, we get those out right away, and we are up to date on all of our orders. So if you have ordered anything, uh, it's in the mail. It's you know it's been ordered and uh, mailed out this week. So hopefully you have it soon. Uh, if you'd like to get it right away, you can click on the this right here and get the PDF version of it where you can print them off yourself for your small group and what what have you. And below that is the Ephraim Awakening DVD-ROM that has all the resources that you see on it there. Alright, so uh, let's continue. Uh, statement of Faith is just uh, what it sounds like. This is what we believe. And Coming Out of Babylon is a real comprehensive page specifically made for new people. Uh, it has lots of resources for you to check out. Books and tons and tons of videos. Lots of things for you to check out on a wide variety of topics to help you understand what we're doing here. Torah Fellowship, if you're looking to interact with people, actually, n not just on the Internet, uh, there's a really cool plug-in here. It takes a few seconds to load that 119 Ministries put up where you can zoom in anywhere in the world where you see one of these blue tags. Click on it, and Marcos. You can contact Marcos there in Brazil. And so that's how that works. What about Paul? 
if you uh, think that we're uh, uh, doing something here that's opposed to what the scriptures teach, uh, most people who believe that will go to something that Paul wrote. And I maintain you shouldn't be quoting or reading one thing that Paul wrote until you thoroughly understand what he read and what he studied, which would be the Law and the Prophets. So here are a lot of commonly asked questions and issues uh, dealing with Paul. Uh, you can check those out. Also, the book of Galatians. A lot of people want to throw out the book of Galatians and say, hey, what about this? What about that? Well, uh, here's a whole bunch of stuff dealing with the book of Galatians. Another page right here for Hebrew calendars. And you notice that the right hand uh, of the website populates with some stuff here. You can do keyword searches in the search bar here. Listen to Yahuwah's Love Letter or Psalm 91. Two very encouraging uh, audios there for you to check out. Bible study tools that I like to use, Blue Letter Bible, Bible Gateway, Bible.cc, Bible.is. These are all tools that I use a lot. The Aramaic English New Testament Bible by Andrew Gabriel Roth. I highly recommend you guys check that out. Very good resource. If you'd like to support what we're doing here, you can do so with this donate button. And for those of you who have already done so, wow, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. We truly, truly appreciate it. I mean it when I say this. We can't do what we do without people like you. So uh, we are, as I say, listener-supported. And uh, down below that are other Torah ministries that I enjoy. Torah ministry is Steve Utria's. Uh, new to Torah is Zach Bauer. 119 Ministries Unlearn is the ministry of Lex Meyer. And, of course, Jim Staley's teachings right there. So that's a little bit of the admin. And for this week's study... You can click on that right there, and you, if you haven't done so already, you can listen to the scriptures for this week's study uh, each week. Um, that will be posted here. Just click on it, and after two whole years, somebody will read them to you. It sounds like my audio is down a little bit. Let me turn my audio up here. Sorry about that. And um, the Parsha in 60 seconds is this week's Torah portion distilled down to 60 seconds. Parsha is just the Hebrew word for study. And then this is the live stream that we're doing right now. This is this video, which as soon as we're done with it, will be archived here. And it, this page will stay like this for the rest of the week until next Friday. Fridays are typically the days that I make updates to this page. And then finally, if you click on this blue button right here, that takes you to the study page for this week. And uh, if you're watching this on a cell phone or a mobile device of some sort, you could click on this right here to a more mobile-friendly version. If you click on that, it takes you to this one here where you can resize it, you know, for your phone or whatever. So it automatically adjusts like that. So kind of cool. But I'll go back to this one here. Again, these are the scriptures. This is the audio for that. Let's go ahead and listen now to the Parsha of the study in 60 seconds, and we'll get started here. Shalom and welcome to Parsha in 60 seconds. Today's portion is from Genesis 41.1, It is called Meat Cakes, which means at the end. Pharaoh had scary dreams in which seven skinny cows ate seven fat cows and another similar dream involving corn. Pharaoh inquired from all of Egypt's wise men and magicians to interpret the dream. They failed. The butler recalled Joseph and told Pharaoh. Joseph interpreted that there would be seven years of good crops followed by seven years of drought. Pharaoh appointed Joseph as his number two man in all of Egypt to prepare for these events. When famine struck, all the people came to Egypt to get food. Ten of Joseph's brothers went 
went down to Egypt, but Jacob kept Benjamin behind to protect him. Joseph saw them, but they did not recognize Joseph. After many tests of the brothers, which involved lots of free meals, Q&A, crying, and imprisonment, Joseph had one final test. Joseph had Benjamin brought to Egypt, and as they were preparing to leave, Joseph hid a goblet in Benjamin's bag. As they were departing, Joseph accused them of stealing and found the cup in the bag. Benjamin would be arrested, but Judah went to Joseph's house to save him. And that is Meat Capes in 60 seconds. Will Judah save his family? Will Benjamin be a slave forever? Tune in next week to see the brothers' fate. <laughs> to be continued. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> then down below that, we have uh, studies from previous years. Uh, a lot of people think this show is too short, and uh, I understand that. Once we get into this stuff, it's a lot of fun to to really dive in. In fact, when we do our regular uh, house church settings, it was not uncommon for us to start at 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon and still be there at 2 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> having all-day studies like that. So uh, you can kind of do the same by listening to previous year's studies. This was the first one we did in 2012, the 2013 broadcast, 2016 broadcast, and this one... We also, in the 2016 broadcast, continued after we did the, the, the previous cycle, ended in Deuteronomy, and then started over in Genesis like everybody else. But in addition to the Genesis study, we continued the rest of the book. So we went into Joshua, and now we're in the book of Judges. And uh, with this week's portion uh, in this broadcast, it was the um, passage talking about Samson. Pretty cool stuff. 2017 broadcast, highly recommend you guys check that out. This was excellent commentary by uh, Darren and Zach from My House Ministries. And these guys hopefully will be joining us in January, so a few more weeks, and uh, hopefully we'll have them joining us here uh, for additional commentary. But definitely recommend you check out what they had to say back in 2017. And this is the uh, Way Biblical Fellowship. Uh, this is JP and Charlie doing uh, this week's tour portion. These commentaries, again, highly recommend you download them, read them. These are by a woman named Ardell from YourLivingWaters.com. 2008-2009 commentaries, fantastic. Highly re recommend you download those, print them off, and uh, study those. If you want to go into more detail of what's covered here in Genesis as it's written in the book of Joshua. Here are the chapters in the book of Joshua that give us a lot more detail, such as Joseph and the 70 languages. I've got a little bit of notes here from previous year's study on that and the uh, Antikytheria, what's it called? Antikytheria mechanism. A little bit of speculation there on that uh, as it pertains this this week's Torah portion. Also, parallels, again, more parallels between Joseph and Yeshua from this week's study. Hopefully, you guys did your homework last week. I told you to draw a line down the center of the page and write uh, Joseph on the left and Yeshua on the right and then come up with as many parallels as you could find, uh, you know, from the Torah portion, uh, you know, in the life of Joseph as well as what you know from the life of Yeshua. You will be amazed at how many there are. I think I'm up to about 50-something total now. Uh in my notes, but pretty cool stuff. And of course, there are other resources here. So that's uh, the little overview uh, to get you guys oriented on the Virtual House Church website. And now I will uh, bring up Jake to join me here. Uh, Kevin and Juan Carlos, I don't believe, will be joining us today. So I think it's just Jake and I. So, uh, hey, Jake, how you doing, man? Hey, what's up, Rob? It's great to be here. Yeah, Shabbat Shalom, bro. Shabbat Shalom. So, uh, excited to hear your thoughts on this week's Torah portion, and if you had a chance to look in the Targums at all, and 
uh, any commentary on the, the the portion from the prophets in the New Testament? Anything you got to say, man? Let's uh, yeah. let's hear it. Yeah, definitely. So uh, this is a great tour portion uh, to really help demonstrate biblical parallelism. So uh, there's multiple things that happen in Scripture, and they seem to kind of flesh out in, in different prophetic patterns uh, in almost a recurring fashion. And uh, this is a great Torah portion because uh, it has a lot in this Torah portion that we can kind of look at. So uh, to just start off, I wanted everybody to uh, just quickly jump over to Genesis 29:18 through 30. And this is uh, something that will be significant for the Torah portion we're reading today. Is um, And this is the Torah portion where, of course, Jacob works for the two wives. And uh, it says in verse 18, Genesis 29, uh, Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife so that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter, Leah, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his female servants Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servants. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and I will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him, his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. So in this Torah portion, we're going to see the dreams of Pharaoh and a recurrence of this number of seven, a, a seven-year period plus another seven-year period. Uh, of course, this is the years of plenty and the years of famine in, in the case of Joseph. Uh, but just looking at um, some of these recurring numbers and how they uh, seem to be playing out um, throughout the Scripture really kind of brought to life some passages I stumbled across for last week's Torah portion, uh, which was um, a, a interpretation of the dreams of the two guys in the jail cell, which is what got Joseph this job to go before Pharaoh, right? And I, I love to talk a little bit more about that in some of these other writings, but um, I, I didn't get a, a chance to mention this last week, but um, there was another interpretation actually given uh, to the dreams from the Torah portion last week of the baker and the guy uh, who was serving the, the cup, the cupbearer. And, uh, and it's interesting because in the Targums, in the, in the uh, Jonathan, pseudo-Jonathan Targums, it says, uh, and Joseph said, this is the interpretation of the dream, talking to the baker, I believe. Uh, the three branches... Uh, are the three fathers of the world, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Jacob. The children of those sons will be enslaved in the land of Mitzrayim and will be delivered by the band of three faithful pastors who may be likened to the clusters. And whereas thou hast said, I took the grapes and expressed them into the cup of Pharaoh and have given the cup into Pharaoh's hand and is the cup of retribution which Pharaoh is to drink at the last. As to thyself, the chief of the butlers, thou wilt not lose thy reward for this dream which thou hast dreamed is good. So, uh, full stop in the in the targums, according to what I'm reading here, and and this is why this is really standing out to me. Joseph is prophesying through these dreams with the three branches, you know, and the three the cups with the cupbearer's dream, uh, that he actually dreamed a prophetic dream about uh, the sons of Israel that were going to be enslaved in the land of Mitzrayim, and he even 
ended it with the the big exclamation mark that the cupbearer giving the cup into Pharaoh's hand in his dream is the cup of retribution which Pharaoh is to drink at the last. Hmm. So this is a big prophecy foreshadowing the story of Moses and the exodus of the children of Israel in the very dreams of uh, the cupbearer and the baker. Wow, I, I'd never heard that before. That, that's in the Targum, or is that just in the commentary, or what? Where, where this, is... this is in the Jerusalem Targum, and it's in wow. chapter uh, forty. And you can read the the dreams that are broken mm. down of Joseph interpreting the dreams of the baker and the the cupbearer, and the the uh, baker had the bad dream, right? He's the one who got mm. executed. But um, it says that. Uh, let me scroll down here and read you the interpretation of the baker's dream. I just read you the cupbearer, which was the good one, right? And it says this. This is the interpretation. The three baskets are the three enslavements with which the house of Israel are to be enslaved. Hmm. But thou, the chief of the bakers, wilt receive an evil award by the dream which thou hast dreamed. And Joseph explained it, and it was proper in his eyes, and said to him, this is the interpretation of the era of, and then the three baskets are three days unto thy death. So something about this I wanted to bring out i know i'm kind of going backpedaling going back to this uh previous tour portion but it kind of sets up uh what we're talking about in this next tour portion is um it's interesting because it, it talks about the three enslavements which the house of israel are to be enslaved and it kind of makes me wonder um is these three enslavements referring to uh you know this future coming just you know that time they were going to be enslaved just as the previous dream was referring to or are these three enslavements times throughout history that we can point to that were being prophesied here in the interpretation of the baker's dream so like i I know you know the babylonian captivity i know they go to egypt the first time um you know it's just interesting there's there's definitely something more to there we can draw out but i want to point those out just because i'd stumbled across them i didn't get to bring it up well yeah and the um so you would have this upcoming um, enslavement that we'll deal with in the book of Exodus. Then you have the uh, Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian captivity. That this, th- that's the ultimate one yeah. that we're still in, <laughs> that we're, we're still waiting to be delivered from. Uh, so, that, yeah, that's pretty profound, man. That's, uh, that's, you know, it just goes to show you that nothing is random. Like, yeah. everything has lots of meaning. You know, uh, we may not pick it up at first, but if you keep digging, and that's why I love doing shows like this and looking into the other texts because we can get more insight from them and then realize, wow, there's there's probably a lot to unpack here. Yeah, where I've kind of come to in terms of my uh, weightiness of the various extra-biblical texts or the different commentary is if I can lay them all out side by side and do a parallel study and mm-hmm. see the common themes that aren't contradictory to the the core narrative, yeah. then that that could really help shed light on you know different aspects of the story. And mm-hmm. you know, of course, with the Targums and Jasher and Jubilees, and we're going to talk about some of these other writings because there's actually my favorite uh, favorite instance in the Book of Jasher. Uh, this extra little story about um, actually this tour portion uh, is one of my favorite stories that I found in the Book of Jasher, and it's all about how uh, Joseph um, like ascends to speak to Pharaoh. And it's this mm-hmm. process of the Joseph, 70 steps. Uh, the steps and how, how fascinating, Rob. I mean, I know you've probably talked about it in the past, but mm-hmm. this is one of my favorite topics uh, that comes out in Jasher about how he just 
profoundly was taught all these 72 languages, which it ties to, you know, how the Pharaoh system worked. It, it says, as it was custom, the Pharaoh had to be able to speak the, the 70 languages of the nations that mm-hmm. uh, were split up after the Tower of Babel. And only those people, who, you know, the, the Pharaoh that could interpret and read and uh, speak in all those languages was able to rule. And so there were these 72 steps, according to the book of Jasher, and uh, allegedly you are only allowed to ascend according to the number of steps you can actually speak in that language. And uh, and what I'm referencing here, just in case you guys wanted to look it up, was in uh, Jasher uh, chapter 48. And uh, that's, this is kind of where it starts setting up the, the story here, but uh, it's in the next couple chapters that we learn that uh Joseph kind of does this miracle before Pharaoh mm-hmm. as this slave guy who comes out from the depths to come and interpret his dream. And he, and he kind of tells him this sign about how his uh, firstborn child is going to die. And, um, and then the next day when he's brought back, the angel actually teaches him to speak in the languages of the 70 nations. And he walks all the way up to the very top to speak to Pharaoh, and usually Pharaoh would have to come down to meet you on however many languages you could speak, right? Well, uh, this is just, it was this miraculous instance explaining how Joseph really kind of, you know, shot the moon, so to Mm. speak, from going from this lowly position of a prisoner to then just overnight, uh, you know, uh, God kind of inspired him to be able to interpret those dreams and to then, you know, be prepared to be this uh, great ruler under Pharaoh's house and uh, just an amazing trajectory. And and I really enjoyed that story in in the Jasher account, uh, which it kind of expounds on how Pharaoh was like so willing to accept the word of this just uh, slave guy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's not that long, so uh, I'll go ahead and read that. Actually, that's um, I have that up on the on the website, so it's kind of cool. So uh, we got some time here. Um, notes from this study I have on our, our Genesis ten page: Joseph and the seventy languages. Go to let us go down there and confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. That's what we see in Genesis eleven seventeen. The number of the languages as being associated with angels. And we get that from Joshua 9.32. And God said to the 70 angels who stood foremost before him, to those who were near to him, saying, Come, let us descend and confuse their tongues, that one man shall not understand the language of his neighbor. And they did so unto them. That's Joshua 9.32. Also, any man who understood to speak in all the 70 languages, he ascended the 70 steps and went up, and spoke till he reached the king. And any man who could not complete the 70, he ascended as many steps as languages which he knew to speak in. So, like, if all you knew is French, English, and Spanish, you could only go up to the third step. It was customary in those days in Egypt that no one should reign over them, but one who understood to speak in the 70 languages. So the Pharaoh had to know all 70 languages. And when Joseph came before the king, he bowed down to the ground before the king, and he ascended to the third step. And the king sat upon the fourth step and spoke with Joseph. And the king said to Joseph, so that's cool. So he apparently only knew three uh, languages, I guess, at that time. And so the the Pharaoh would come down to speak to the person, you know, at at whatever level they were at. Um, 
And the king said to Joseph, I dreamed a dream, and there is no interpreter to interpret it properly. And I commanded this day that all the magicians of Egypt and the wise men thereof should come before me. And I related my dreams to them, and no one has properly interpreted them to me. Now therefore, our Lord and king, behold, this Hebrew man can only speak the Hebrew language. And how can he be over us, the second under, this is afterwards, uh, after he had been, you know, I'm skipping ahead here. Uh, after Joseph had been made uh, second in charge. So the people are kind of freaking out about it. Uh, and they said, uh, how can a Hebrew man who can only speak the Hebrew language, how can he be over us, the second under government, a man who not even knoweth our language? Now we pray thee send for him and let him come before thee and prove him in all things and do as thou see fit. And the king said, it shall be done tomorrow, and the thing that you have spoken is good. And all the officers came on that day before the king. And on that night, the Lord sent one of his ministering angels, and he came into the land of Egypt unto Joseph. And the angel of the Lord, so Yeshua, I believe, stood before Joseph. And behold, Joseph was lying in bed at night in his master's house in the dungeon, for his master had put him back into the dungeon on account of his wife. And the angel roused him from his sleep, and Joseph rose up, and stood upon his legs, and behold, the angel of the Lord was standing opposite to him, and the angel of the Lord spoke with Joseph, and he taught him all the languages of man that night. So he got all, all 70 languages taught to him that night. And he called his name Yehoseph. And the angel of the Lord went from him, and Joseph returned to lay upon his bed, and Joseph was astonished at the vision that he saw. And it came to pass in the morning that the king sent for all his officers and servants, and they all came and sat before the king. And the king ordered Joseph to be brought. And the king's servants went and brought Joseph before Pharaoh. And the king brought forth and ascended the steps of the throne. And Joseph spoke unto the king in all languages. And Joseph went up to him and spoke unto the king until he arrived before the king in the seventieth step. And he sat before the king. And the king greatly rejoiced on account of Joseph. And all the king's officers rejoiced greatly with the king when they heard all the words of Joseph. That must have been pretty cool. Like, as he's walking up each step, he's changing his, his language. That's that's really awesome. Oh, yeah. And the thing seemed good in the sight of the king and the officers to appoint Joseph to be second to the king over the whole land of Egypt. And the king spoke to Joseph, saying, Now thou didst give me counsel to appoint a wise man over the land of Egypt in order with his wisdom to save the land before the famine. Now, therefore, since God has made all this known to thee and all the words which thou hast spoken, there is not throughout the land a discreet and wise man like unto thee. And thy name no more shall be called Joseph, but Zaphnath, Peniah, shall be thy name. Thou shalt be second to me, and according to thy word shall be all the affairs of my government, and at thy word shall my people go out and come in. Also from under thy hand shall all my servants and officers receive their salary, which is given to them monthly. And to thee shall all the people of the land bow down. Only in my throne will I be greater than thou. And the king took off his ring from his hand and put it upon the hand of Joseph. And the king dressed Joseph in a princely garment, and he put a crown upon his head, and he put a golden chain upon his neck. And the king commanded his servants, and they made him ride in the second chariot belonging to the king that went opposite to the king's chariot. And he caused him to ride upon a great and strong horse from the king's horses and to be conducted through the streets of the land of Egypt. And that's Joshua forty-nine ten through 24. So, 
yeah, just thought, you know, we have some time here to go ahead and read that, and we'll cover some more interesting stuff regarding uh, Benjamin before him. But, yeah, I've always loved that too, man, especially when I first read that. First time I saw that in, in uh, Joshua, I was like, wow, that's just cool. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's just crazy to think about how uh, the different mindsets of people based on languages is something I was actually thinking about uh, just recently talking with a friend is, uh, you know, you have all these different languages across the world and each language uh, has different customs and ways they think about things. Um, and it's just it's mind boggling to think about how intelligent or, or uh, how you know, hyper aware you would be of, of different concepts if you could speak multiple languages. Mm. And with this, you know, premise of Joseph being overnight taught 70 language, you know, all the nation's languages, uh, it g just goes to show, wow, you know, this guy was being hyper prepared to be the guy to be like the yes man for Pharaoh, <laughs> you know? So, um, well, yeah, but not just that, because when, when he does finally, you know, become the, the one in charge uh, to officiate uh, trade and everything and, and dealing with uh, the famine, people would be coming from all the surrounding lands speaking different languages, you know? So he, he as sort of the, the czar of commerce, <laughs> what, uh, as it were, he would have to be able to communicate with them directly uh, without having to go through an interpreter, which would prevent fraud, you know, because he, yeah. he would know directly what's being spoken to him. Yeah, very, very cool. Which is really funny because later on when his brothers show right. up, yeah. uh, they start to converse in front of him, mm -hmm. and they're they're not suspecting him to understand their Hebrew tongue or whatever. And mm -hmm. I'm I'm just kind of imagining like Joseph's like right hand man or you know, like his assistant like looking at them and looking <clears throat> at Joseph and be like, they do know he went up the seventy two steps, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Oh man. So um, another thing I wanted to point out. Uh, which was really interesting that was in the Targums part of this, in the Targums uh, chapter 42, verse 3, uh, it actually mentions how Joseph uh, was one of the original guys to set up customs and immigration, hmm. uh, which is kind of, you know, this, that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, yeah. So that is in uh, chapter 42, verse 3, and it says that, uh, Joseph was ruler over the land, and he knew that his brethren had come to buy, for he had appointed notaries at the gates of the cities to register daily everyone who came in, and his name, and the father of his, and the name of his father, and he who has sold corn to all the people of the land. So basically, the the checkbox of going through immigration, right? <laughs> you know, that's that's something that possibly could be attributed to Joseph, which is kind of interesting. Um, and uh, so another thing I wanted to point out here, and uh, this was explicitly mentioned in the Jubilees covering of this uh, part, you know, particular story is in Jubilees chapter 40, verse 11. Um, it, it points out that when Joseph came to stand before Pharaoh, he was 30 years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is an extremely, you know, significant age. And I just wanted to bring up this topic for a moment because it can tie into some New Testament principles and, and concepts and also some things we see in the Torah uh, in terms of the servitude of the Levitical priesthood. So, uh, for example, most people don't know that there is an age of accountability in the scriptures, um, and that age is set out as 20. Now, that is the age of the men that would be counted for war. Um, it was the people that were under 20 that didn't get, you know, have to die in the wilderness along with the unfaithful that 
didn't go into the promised land when they were offered that first opportunity. So, um, you know, there's several different significant ages given throughout Scripture. But regarding the priesthood, the age of 30 is extremely significant because it's the, the age that a high priest would begin their ministry. Um, and this is supposedly um, also the age that Yeshua would have started his ministry uh, in the New Testament sense. So this mm-hmm. is just another one of those parallels um, uh, that maybe we can be bringing out is just this age of the the initiation of kind of their ultimate purpose, destiny, you know, mission, right? You know, as Joseph turns 30 and he's 30 years old, he stands before Pharaoh to be, you know, entered into this, you know, ministry of <laughs> agriculture or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, we have Yeshua uh, at 30 kind of initiated his ministry. So, um, you know, there's just more and more of these parallels as we go through, and it's one of the reasons I started out saying how this is such an important uh, uh, tour portion, because it really points out uh, biblical parallelism and how that kind of works in a prophetic uh, recurring fashion throughout Scripture. So another thing I really wanted to bring out that I'd never thought of that is really exciting in a way is um, a lot of people talk about how the mixed multitude uh, were were you know, people that came out of Egypt with the Israelites when they left in the Exodus account. And this occurrence of the seven years of famine that brought all the nations of the world to beggar and to basically sell themselves and sell the things that they had to get food um, from Egypt just to live uh, is one of the reasons I believe that uh you know, the children of Israel and that mixed multitude, the Egyptian nation that was, you know, kind of divided when the Israelite exodus happened, was a nation that was truly a smelting pot of of the world. And the reason I want to point that out, and I, I think that's the case, is because of this famine, which brought literally the nations of the world to come down and buy and to uh, sell, you know, their goods to become, you know, uh, you know, some of them sold themselves into slavery just so that they could eat, right? And so the significance of this is that this famine caused kind of a, a crop to be harvested from around the world mm. and to be brought into Egypt. And this crop wow. likely could have had, you know, many, many <clears throat> different types and blends of people all represented there in Egypt uh, and that were then, you know, would procreate and multiply. And then whenever the exodus from Egypt happened later on during exit in Exodus, you know, this is a crop from the whole world. So everybody's like, you know, what, what did Israelites actually look like? What did the people who left Egypt mm-hmm. actually look like? I think they looked like the crop of the world, you well, know, yeah, the that's, coat of many colors. There you go. That, I was just going to say that. that I, I think that's exactly what it's the coat of many colors. And that, that's why, yeah. you know, I get so upset with the, whether you're talking about white British Israelis, Israelism or the black Hebrew movement or any, anybody that yeah. wants to make this about a color is completely ignorant of the history of what we're talking about here. You know, but I hadn't considered what you had just said that that yeah, because the famine went out throughout the the known inhabited world at the time. You know, I don't think it was worldwide, as in the entire world, but as in the the populated known world at the time, which was essentially ruled by Egypt. Uh, you know, there are other. It, it was the superpower, I guess you could say, of that day. And so, you know, as word began to spread that, you know, hey, Egypt has food, then all of the surrounding nations, the 70 languages, the 70 people groups, the 70 nations would have come down to Egypt 
to get food, and you had the 70 people of the house of Jacob at that time come down, which I also thought was really cool. So you have the 70 and the 70, but I hadn't considered that. That's a that's a really profound insight there, Jake. Uh, the idea that the people from all over the world, you know, came down from from the house of Shem to the house of Japheth and the house of Ham, all coming together to Egypt to get food. And many of them, you know, obviously you're not going to just get food and go back because you're going to eat that food. How much food can you carry, right? Yeah. You know, uh, you can only carry so much food and then you got to go back to Egypt. So, you know, the, the, the smart person would be like, well, I can keep going back and forth all the time or I could just see if I can set a shop in Egypt, you know, start living there. And yeah, we become servants of, of Egypt, you know, whatever, but, but we're going to eat. So then you would have representatives of everybody there and that mixed multitude coming out. What what happened to the mixed multitude? They didn't stay mixed. They got assimilated into one of the 12 tribes. You know, like, well, probably all 12 of the 12, of the 12 tribes, but I mean, you as an individual would get assimilated or adopted into a particular tribe. You know, uh, like, uh, was it uh, Caleb? Uh, I think I always get it confused with Caleb and Joshua. Caleb was a, a Kenite, I think, or something, and I, for, I forget. Yeah, I, I forget. Caleb what... was the he was not of the tribes of Israel, but he was given an equal inheritance among the tribes of Israel. I think alongside Judah is where his portion was. Yeah, given. I, yeah. I was gonna say I, I thought Caleb got adopted into Judah. Um, let me just do a look up on that from the. Uh, I think Caleb. Caleb. I think Caleb got adopted into Judah, and Joshua was of Ephraim. I think. I forget it. We'll we'll get to it eventually. But whatever the case may be, you had both represented there. But so yeah, I mean, if you're of the other nations, you're you know depending on where you were coming out of Egypt and what groups you were already with, you got adopted into, you know, Simeon or Reuben or Levi or whatever. You were grafted slash adopted slash legally immigrated into one of those, which is why we have to be also. That's what Romans 7 through 11 is talking about, us being grafted into the cultivated olive tree that is Israel, that uh, we are adopted in uh, Ephesians where it talks about us being, you know, uh, once... um, Actually, I think it's uh, Galatians talks about uh, adoption and Ephesians talks about um, uh, legal immigration. You were once uh, afar off from the promises of Israel, now have been brought nigh into the commonwealth of Israel. So the, the language used there is one of legal immigration being brought into the commonwealth. So you have grafting, you have legal uh, 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 immigration, and you have the metaphor of adoption, you know, where, whereby we are now heirs to the promises of Abraham. So, yeah, when 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 we get to the book of Exodus and the and, and the actual Exodus occurs, all these people going out, the mixed rabble would have included people from all over the world, and and also to compound that, you have Ephraim himself, who was prophesied, you know, in the coming Torah portions next week or the week after. Um, and you know what? I'm gonna see if maybe maybe Jim Staley. I'm, I'm gonna see if he'd be willing to join us for that one. I think it's Torah portion twelve. I think so. In a couple of weeks, I'll reach out and see if he'll do it. 
That'd be kind of cool because he could do a whole thing on uh, uh, on identity crisis. But you know, when uh, Jacob crossed his hands over Ephraim and Manasseh and blessed Ephraim, he blessed Ephraim and prophesied that he would become a multitude of nations. Well, you already have a mixed multitude. Some say about two million people altogether coming out at the time of the Exodus, and then they're mixing together within the tribes that they're in for centuries until we get to about 720. BC, and then you have the Assyrian captivity, and they're dispersed into all the world for over 2,730 years. So there's no way you could say true Israel is black, or, true Israel is white. True, no, yeah. it's a coat of many colors. That's why we have these stories to tell us that. But I appreciate your insight on that, man. That it, that that mixed multitude uh, would have started right here. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that big parallel I want to draw to even a future prophetic sense, that now this is going from a micro view of this particular story and going to macro view of just understanding that now the house of Israel has thoroughly mixed into all of the nations. Well, we know the, the Great Tribulation, you know, it sometimes has been likened to the time of Jacob's trouble. Well, there's definitely famines and events happening in, uh, you know, the book of Revelation and end times and that are happening to the modern church. Uh, that have it triggers another tile gathering, kind of like is happening in this instance during you know the time of Jacob's trouble. So literally another regathering of of the nations uh, into this place that would eventually become the nation of Israel. So uh, you know, just interesting stuff there. Um, you know, something I wanted to discuss a little bit because it's always interests me, and people have different theories is. Why is it that this particular Pharaoh that falls in love with the children of Israel, uh, he seems to, you know, he he's all for, you know, the children of Israel. But then we have the Pharaoh later on that comes during the, the time of Moses mm -hmm. uh, does not remember. Uh, it says a new Pharaoh arose who did not know the, you know. So it kind of makes me wonder if this particular Pharaoh um, is a subsidiary of the Babylonian system that was originated by Nimrod and the Cal, you know, the, the Chaldean, you know, uh, Ur and all that kind of stuff. Whenever the, the split happened, you know, there were probably, you know, little subsidiaries of that empire spread out. And I wonder if this uh, particular Pharaoh was kind of a, a descendant of that Babylonian system of, of leadership. And, uh, and if it wasn't uh, an example of uh, somebody coming in, conquering this dynasty that we see being propped up by Joseph, um, and the reason that uh, they didn't remember uh, the children of Israel is because it was just a totally different dynasty. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, that, and, yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, just bef before you move on from that topic, I wanted to address that uh, because we'll get to it eventually, but um, Chuck Missler put out a teaching a while back that uh, really opened my eyes to that whole idea, and it's actually in Isaiah 52, uh, 3 through 5. For thus say, says Yahuwah, you have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says Yahuwah Elohim, my people went down at first into Egypt, dwell there, then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause in Egypt. So it was an Assyrian king that uh, was the pharaoh that came along that did not know Joseph. I mean, you got to figure... From the time of uh, Joseph being sold into slavery to the time of the Exodus is 215 years. 
So that's not a long long time. I mean, you're, that'd be like us looking back to Abraham Lincoln time period, you know, right? Um, so, you know, you're talking 200 years or so. You know, if you're going to be a president of the United States, you, you you better know about Abraham Lincoln and George Washington at least, you know? You know, you don't have to maybe know all about the pilgrims and all that stuff, but you better at least know, you know, our... our are all the leaders that we've had since this nation became a nation, you know, going back to the 1700s. So, you know, three, two, 300 years. Um, and so for a Pharaoh to arise that didn't know his own history, that wouldn't make any sense at all, unless it was a, a ruler coming from another country coming in and, uh, ruling, you know, probably conquering and then ruling and reigning. And so he wouldn't know Joseph. You know, he, he's, he's a new guy in town. But I, I do believe that that has um, some prophetic significance also uh, in the end times regarding the Assyrian. Yeah, it's just the dichotomy between the Babylonian system and the Assyrian system is really interesting to me because we see it kind of fleshed out in this account of the children of Israel in Egypt is uh, the Babylonian system. Uh, seems to kind of adopt the the children of Israel in. Uh, they kind of lose their identity because it, it's a smelting pot, and if they kind of you know you know join the way of the nations, right? They lose who they are. But um, you know you have the Babylonian system really seems to set up and cause the children of Israel to be fruitful whenever they're under that system, right? They're in captivity under the Babylonian uh, model, like you know you have them being fruitful in. Uh, the you know 600 you know bc whenever they're brought to uh by nebuchadnezzar and then they get to go back into the land uh generally like it seems like the assyrian system is the system or the rulership that always is killing the firstborns uh they're the you know they're the prophetic you know bad guy throughout the picture that really fits the picture of the antichrist um, and we see that in the book of Revelation, you have the, the mystery Babylon, the great harlot, right, who caused the nations to be, uh, you know, drunk on the wine of her, you know, idolatry. Uh, but also she was the place for merchants and everybody prospered. So this is a, a parallel with if this pharaoh that was, you know, interacting with Joseph is a subsidiary of the, the Babylonian system set up by Nimrod, right? Um, well, then we have, you know, uh, this uh, uh, time of prospering, right? Just like in Revelation, you have Mystery Babylon, a time of prospering. And, um, and then you have the Assyrian comes in, and, and uh, the dragon wants to burn the woman with fire in the book of Revelation context. Well, in this sense, if this Assyrian comes in and conquers this Babylonian system, he props himself up and sets himself up to be this guy that can then, you know, commit the atrocities and enslave uh, the children of Israel, and uh, you know the dichotomies between those two systems and how uh, Yah uses them for different purposes throughout history. You know, I can I see I see them kind of repeating, um, and uh, and it's the system of like you know uh, uh, you know whenever the children of Israel went to Egypt, they multiplied, and it was the Babylonian rulership that allowed them to you know grow fruitful, and you know they grew in number, but it was the Assyrian system that seems to force them out into the uncomfortable wilderness experience, right? And uh, and then we see that later on. Um, the Antichrist is who, you know, uh, destroys the Babylonian system. The Antichrist, the Assyrian, right, rises up and then puts the world into a time of tribulation. And uh, this is all stuff that 
you know, I'm trying to draw in parallels here with our tour portion, but I just kind of want to help people understand how uh, there's really a lot to um, uh, these tour portions that we can kind of uh, see paralleled in a lot of the prophetic scriptures and, and just repeated throughout the story. It's just really cool. And, and that was the main thing I was wanting to point out about those dreams and, uh, and how uh, J- Joseph really prophetically called out the children of Israel uh, and their time of captivity in Egypt. So um, another big thing, you know, of course, we, we have to touch on for those who are unfamiliar with, with you know, uh, how the Messiah can really be found in this story is just how his brothers didn't recognize him. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever Joseph was put in this position of authority, they came before him. They had no clue who he was. And, and in such a way, you know, also when the Messiah came, you know, and, you know, uh, and get, you know, presented himself as the Messiah, the Jews didn't recognize him. You know, some people did, uh, but they didn't recognize him when he came. And, uh, and I think that's a, a big parallel here that, uh, is just really interesting and in, in how we can, you know, see, you know, that whole premise of Messiah ben Joseph, Messiah ben David, you know, the first time the Messiah came, he would be this suffering servant who would, you know, go through hardship and, but he, he was the redeemer of the people. And then, you know, we have him coming again as this warring, conquering king. Yeah. Good word there that he is the redeemer. And, you know, I always found it interesting also that, you know, we have Joseph here, this character, and I, and I put briefly on the screen, uh, the scripture uh, where Paul's talking in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. He says, now all these things happened to them, them being the people in the Torah, uh, as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So, like, if we want to understand the end, we got to go back to the beginning. <laughs> you know, go back here. And these stories are, are meant to help us to understand what's to come. And so we have the story of Joseph, who is, as you said, the Redeemer. Um, how interesting, then, that Yeshua gives a, as you pointed out, there's sort of these, this two, this idea of two messiahs, the Messiah ben Joseph, the suffering servant, and Messiah ben Judah, you know, the conquering king. And Yeshua came the first time to be our Redeemer, but his stepfather was a guy named Joseph. <laughs> you know, like, it's almost like, Hello. So he would have been Yeshua ben Joseph, Yeshua, son of Joseph. You know, so we say uh, um, Messiah ben Joseph, right? Uh, you know, like he literally came, like it's almost like, hello. <laughs> you know, even though Joseph wasn't his actual physical father, he, he was, you know, his adopted father, you know, uh, he, he was the son of Joseph, the carpenter, right? Um I'm just like it. That's like this big flashing neon sign. Like, hey, I'm the Messiah Ben Joseph. See, son of Joseph. <laughs> you know, I always thought that was cool. Oh, you. I wanted to clarify here that I, I didn't mean you know the children of Israel should be joined to those two systems. I was talking about more so you know just whenever we're under an oppression because of sin, usually it's under one or two of those you know, uh, systems of kind of, uh, uh, tribulation. And, um, and I, w- I wanted to point out something that I'm, I'm really curious here is if you guys can maybe, you know, see something, uh, in the passages of the test that, that Joseph gives to his brothers. Um, and it was a testing of their hearts. And, uh, and I think, you know, 
the significant thing that we're all trying to get out of this scripture is, you know, how can we apply it to our spiritual life and our walk, and what can we learn from these passages to kind of prepare us uh, for our life and and how the in the ways that Yah might test us. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's great that how you know Joseph really does have these Messiah-like qualities. You know, he's the one figure in the Bible that never messed up, right? Uh, maybe I'm uh, I'm pretty sure he's the one figure in the Bible that there wasn't you know a bad instance recorded about him. Mm. Um, uh, you know, save for, you know, he kind of told his dream to his brothers. That might have been pride. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but then again, how would they know, you know, that it was a prophetic thing unless he spoke out about what he dreamed? Um, anyways, uh, what I wanted to point out is at the end of the tour portion, the te- the testing of his brothers uh, could be a, a significant thing in relation to the testing that believers are going to go through um, in our own lives. And, it, you know, if there is a, a, a trial or tribulation ahead, uh, then we need to prepare our hearts in the same way to be, you know, tested, you know, because we do see that that's a premise in Deuteronomy 13 that Yah himself will send, you know, false prophets to test us and uh, it to see if our hearts truly love him. So, you know, the whole premise of this testing, and I wanted to see if we could draw a spiritual parallel out of it and and how to prepare our own hearts for for testings is, you know, uh, so what was the test? He filled the men's sacks with food, all they they could carry. He he put money in the mouth of the sack, and uh, and the silver cup in the sack of the youngest with the money for the grain. And so, uh, in the end, what happened was um, when they had returned with their brother uh, Benjamin, and it was found out that Benjamin had the cup. You had the older brothers willing to lay down their lives, Judah in particular, willing to lay down his life um, for his younger brother, Benjamin. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he was accepting responsibility. Um, and I can't help but to think that it was partially, you know, I kind of wonder how benevolent was Joseph behind all this? Like, was he almost like, wh- how would he have acted if they had done wickedly in these situations? Is kind of what I'm wondering. Because all his memory of them is this, you know, these brothers that sold him into slavery. They wanted to kill him. You know, was he testing them and just, you know, what would have happened if they had, you know, just been wicked, you know, and, and not been truthful and, and tried to, you know, actually, you know, steal or not, you know, come forward with all the things that he's testing them on. Uh, it turned out well for them because they had changed their hearts from their immature ways, you know, previously, um, it turned out well for them and for their whole family. Um, but imagine if Joseph in this position of power had found them and, and they were like, you know, they, they, they didn't answer truthfully and they were trying to, you know, sell out their brother again. <clears throat> what if they tried to sell out Benjamin? Yeah. You know, that would not have gone well. And so we got to, you know, keep that in mind that, you know, we might be in a position to sell out our brother or sell out, you know, you know, in the, you know, if we're, you know, presented with a, you know, a, a choice to worship the Antichrist, right, or or to turn our lives away from righteousness and walk towards sin, uh, you know, or what are we going to choose? Are we going to be like the first edition where they sold their brother into slavery and caused Jacob's mourning, and or are they going to be the mature, you know, uh, brother that was like, you know, what I'm going to lay down my life. Uh, for my brother and you take me into slavery, not him. Right. So, uh, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about that and how, you know, if this whole story of Joseph and the testing is a parallel to the Messiah, you know, 
there's also, you know, this this idea of, of testing whether we love him, whether we love the Messiah, whether we want to truly walk after him. And, you know, the scripture talks about how, you know, he, you know, a father reproves a son he loves, right? So, you know, whenever we're being tested, you know, it also can show that there might be a reward on the other end of that. And whenever you're tested and you come through and, and you don't give in to a wicked path, you can also find a reward on that back end. Just like, you know, the brothers, they, they, they had totally changed their hearts. And guess what? The whole family got to benefit because they, they were willing to demonstrate their love uh, that they had not had previously for Joseph. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is one of the most beautiful stories in the scriptures. I mean, truly. And I was trying to think, I, th- I think it was the, the movie Prince of Egypt uh, actually did a pretty good job of, of depicting some of these things. Um, I, I do appreciate what, you know, Judah stepping up to the plate on that. Like, wow, that's that's very cool. And, and it makes me wonder in an end times context, you know, how does that play out? You know what I mean? Like, what is what's that going to look like? You know, I don't know. I guess we'll have to, to wait and see. I did find it interesting, though, in um, Genesis 42, uh, what Reuben says. In, in Genesis 42, 37, uh, we're going back to 36. And Jacob, their father, said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not. And will ye take Benjamin away? All these things are against me. And Reuben spake unto his father, saying, Slay my two sons, if I bring him not to thee. Deliver him into my hand, and I will bring him to, to thee again. Like, that's not really... I mean, you can kind of appreciate what he's saying. He's like, you know, look, I love my sons just as much as you love your sons, so you can kill my sons if if I don't do this, you know, for you. But that's not a good alternative. You know, I mean, how many... You ever hear proud grandparents? You know, it's almost like grandparents love their grandchildren almost even more than their own children sometimes, you know? It's, it's like, oh, you know, grandma and grandpa, you know, when you become that grandparent, you love your grandchildren. So for Reuben to say, yeah, go ahead and kill your grandchildren, that's not really a good alternative right there. You know, uh, You know, thankfully Judah steps up to play with a better option. Yeah, I, I, you know, how could that play out? Um, I don't know, but I just, you know, as long as we, just like Joseph, kind of follow in, in some of those examples, you know, whenever Joseph was presented with uh, an opportunity to sin, uh, uh, he ran from it, right? So that's the whole story of Potiphar's wife. It's uh, in the same way, you know, how can we run from the temptations in our own life and uh, also, you know, practice wisdom? Because we have that principle, gentle is doves, wise as serpents, right? You know, whenever you're presenting, you know, this is something that is a New Testament concept, you know, and, and the presentation of, uh, you know, whenever somebody's a fisher of men, right? You can't just go in there, you know, guns blazing and hope to win a convert. You can't hope to somebody to see the truth if, if you're not, you know, fishing, you know, because the, the fishing is analogy of, you know, winning people into uh, the flock, you know, people to become believers in the Messiahs, uh, you know, the fish is, fishing analogy uh, is uh, is a great analogy that we can look at because, you know, you're actually uh, wise about how you would approach people. You know, you show interest, you show care, um, and it's the same kind of wit that I see with Joseph kind of exemplified here, uh, how he was testing and, he, you know, he... Uh, you know, he, he knew how to communicate, um, but he also uh, was operating underneath, 
you know, this Pharaoh system, but he used that system to uh, do it to the glory of God. So what happened is I kind of wonder if he didn't have this prophetic, you know, sixth sense knowing that the children of Israel were going to come to Egypt in some way. And, and he was like, well, uh, we, we can set this up to be as good as possible. And uh, whenever Jacob came down, um, it's almost like he had it all planned out. And he kind of had forewarning with some of these dreams that I mentioned before with the baker and the, the cupbearer um, that, you know, he was going to be put in the, this position. And, uh, and he, he definitely uh, made the most of it. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, you know, I really like what Joseph is doing here. You know, like he realizes, okay, they don't recognize me, but I want to see have they changed at all. And, I mean, you could tell this this guy was a wise man. Like he just thought on a different level. He was playing, as they say, four-dimensional chess here. You know, for him to on the fly, because he had no idea that they were going to be coming, you know, but on the fly, he starts coming up with all these little schemes to test them and, you know, hide the money in their bags and, you know, put the cup in the bag and <laughs> and then see what they would say about it, you know. And uh, I just love it, man. I love the whole story. I love the, the genius of it, like everything about it. Um, when it comes to the issue of the cup that was hidden in um, in Benjamin's bag, like, okay, so there's this whole drama you know, where he's trying to figure out, okay, is Benjamin still, you know, that's his real blood brother. You know, the others are half-brothers, you know. Uh, so Benjamin and, and Joseph had the same mother. So, uh, and Benjamin would have been quite young when uh, Joseph was originally sold into slavery, right? So, you know, he's wanting to know, you know, what's up with Benjamin. Meanwhile, dad's like, you know, because Joseph and Benjamin were from his prized bride, Rachel. And having th- thought that he lost Joseph, he's like, no, you're not. Yeah, I can't lose Benjamin, too. And, you know, so meanwhile, they're, they're down to the last morsel of crumb that they have left. And like, and Pharaoh's like, you know, don't come back unless you bring the, the, the your other brother. You know, and they're like, Dad, we got, you know, we got to, you know, we, we got to do it, you know. Uh and so, you know, Judas is like, well, you know, I'll do this. And they, they go down there and, <laughs> um, uh, and then everything seems good. And then they, they get caught with the, the cup in Benjamin's bag. And everybody's like, no, no, you know, because they're like, look, we, you know, we brought the money back before. You know, why would we, we what, why would we steal from you? You know, we're, we're honest people. We're not going to do that. You know, you know, may, may the servant, you know, be dead. You know, may you kill the servant who you find that has this and then we'll be, the rest of you will, will serve you. <laughs> so you can see them saying that and they're, you know, you know, in, in all honesty and in, in desperation. And then when the cup is found in Benjamin's bag, everyone's like, no, no, God, no, you know, uh, but, but when they get back to Joseph he says something that uh, on the surface seems really bizarre. He, he says, um, let me see, let me uh, pull that scripture up. Um, diviner. D- divineth. Divineth. Uh, that's 44.5. Uh, let me switch it over here. Okay, I'll, I'll go back to 44.1. And he commanded the... St- and he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry, and 
put every man's money in his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the sack's mouth of the youngest and his corn money. And he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away and they and their asses. And when they were gone out of the city, not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when thou dost overtake them, say unto them, Wherefore have ye rewarded evil for good? Is not this is 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 not this it in which my Lord drinketh, and whereby indeed he divineth? He hath done evil in so doing. And he overtook them and spake unto them these same words. And they said spake unto they said unto him, Wherefore saith my Lord these words? God forbid that thy servants should do according to this thing. Behold, the money which we found in our sacks, mouths, we brought again unto thee out of the land of Canaan. How then should we steal out of thy Lord's house silver or gold? With whomever of thy servants it be found, both let him die, and we also will be my Lord's bondmen. And he said, Now let it be according unto your words. And he, he with whom it is found shall be my servant, and ye shall be blameless. And they speedily took down every man's sack to the ground, and opened every man's sack. And he searched and began at the eldest, and left at the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And so there's the whole issue of divining. Like, is Joseph really saying that he was scrying? You know, uh, that would that was a, a cult practice of of, you know, looking in the reflection of uh, liquid in a bowl or in a cup like that and divining information from it. Was he really saying that? I don't think so. I, I think that, he, I don't believe that Joseph was actually doing that. It could be that he was because he was in a pagan land and he may have learned some things. Um, but it seems to me the way the all the story, the whole narrative's playing out so far, it the, he, he's playing up the mystique. Like, there was this mystique of of Egyptian rulers, you know, and all their pomp and flair and all the ornaments and things that they wore and the 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 things that Egypt was known for. I think he was playing playing up the part with his brothers, you know. Like, in other words, how do you think I know all this about you guys? Because you know, he hasn't revealed to them that he's he's their brother, so he's playing on their own superstitions. In my opinion, that's this is not thus saith the Lord. This is thus thinking thinketh Rob here. I think I think he's just playing up their own superstitions. It's like how like you know you took my divining cup. <laughs> and they're like, oh man, you know. I mean, he's totally messing with these guys. It, yeah, it, I love that man because on the one hand, you know. He keep because there's several times where he gets choked up, like when he he's there and, and he sees and he hears what they're saying, and he has to go in the other room and cry because he you know he's feeling vindicated. He's realizing you know what they really do feel bad about what they did to me, and you know he's rejoicing that all that God has brought all this to him. You know, when you have that that moment where you knew where you know you who has brought whatever was meant for evil and he's turned it around for good, and he, you're in that moment. It's an emotional moment, so. There's several times where he goes away to emotionally, you know, discharge a little bit to deal with, you know, what what he's feeling, and then he comes back with all these somewhat devious plans to mess with these guys. <laughs> I just think it's awesome, man. But that's my opinion. What's your take on it? Do you think uh, there there was oh, any yeah. real stuff, or was he just jacking with them? Well, the more you were talking about it, it reminded me of how he <laughs> set them around according to their birth 
order yeah. uh, around the table. So, you know, there is multiple examples where they were just like looking like, what is how to because, <laughs> you know, none of them knew. And uh, and he set them up uh, to basically just think, you know, he he was a stranger. But, you know, I think there's, you know, also a significance. It says, you know, when they sat around the table that he actually gave uh, Benjamin like a multiplied portion in front of all of the brothers. Yeah, I get some like five times as much or something, I think. Yeah, and uh, and it's it's uh, it's really interesting. You know, uh, I've wondered if there's not a, a prophetic significance to that, you know, in relation to, um, you know, I, I've, uh, I've, I've kind of thought about how uh, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, uh, for me, really represents uh, kind of uh, the, the Catholic ideology and the Catholic kind of... Uh, uh, nations. Um, the reason being, you know, Paul was a Benjamite, and a lot of the doctrines that were kind of, uh, you know, uh, justified the Catholic rule uh, were using the writings of Paul. You know, and and uh, and so the significance of that being, you know, the Catholic Church is five times larger than any other Christian denomination in the world. Hmm. Um, and I've wondered if there's not you know a significance there there's also some passages and some of the prophets i'd have to look it up for another time uh to talk more about this theory of how the tribe of benjamin really characterizes these catholic nations um uh primarily because um uh well for one the catholic church is five times larger than any other denomination um there's a lot of uh benjamite uh, anyways, a whole theory. It's a whole theory. Uh, but um, there's this prophetic passage that talks about basically it flat out describes nuns, and uh, and and it's referring to uh, Benjamin in the past. Anyways, uh, I'm off on a rabbit trail here. But um, uh, so this whole this whole uh, exchange of them kind of getting duped by by Joseph is 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 really interesting. And then of course you have the big reveal at the end. Uh, where he's like, all right, I can't mess with them anymore. I'm your brother, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and you know, I, well, we have, yeah, we haven't actually got there yet. And that's what's so cool about <laughs> this week's, well, actually, the last couple of tours portions, like the rabbis or whoever it was that decided to divide up the Torah into uh, weekly studies that you can complete the whole Torah in a year. Wh- whoever it was that made the decision to do that w- had some. Uh, literary skill. They had understanding of storytelling because several of these Torah portions end on a cliffhanger. It's like, dun, dun, dun! <laughs> what's going to happen next? Tune in next week. We'll, we'll find out. You know, because uh, <laughs> like this one right here, um, you know, so, uh, and Judas said, what shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. And he said, God forbid that I should do so, but the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. And as for you, get you up in peace unto your father. <laughs> we already know from the setup that, that Jacob's like, you better, you know, <laughs> nothing better happened to Benjamin. <laughs> of all the ones that went down there, Benjamin's the one that has to stay behind. And so, like, it's a beautiful cliffhanger the way they, they leave us hanging here. All right. Um, yeah, well, that was primarily what I had from, like, this main tour portion. Uh, you know, there's 
the the topic of the two witnesses when we look in the half Torah portion of this uh, uh, yeah. Torah portion. So we could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, I I, uh, I love the talk of the two witnesses because it's a uh, uh, you know in this uh, half Torah portion. Of course, we're talking in Zechariah two, and um, uh, the vision of the golden lampstand, um, and you know you know of course we have Joshua and Zerubbabel who are these two witnesses and uh you know just interesting maybe we can get into some of that yeah absolutely <clears throat> um in fact let me switch over here we can go ahead and read it uh, a lot of times we don't read the half tour portion but it's pretty short <clears throat> so um i'll go ahead and read it zechariah 2 through 4 um and sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to Yahuwah in that day, and shall be my people. Many nations shall be joined to Yahuwah in that day, and shall be my people. So it's not just black and white, or black, black or white, I should say. It's everybody. And shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that Yahuwah of hosts has sent me unto thee. And Yahuwah shall inherit Judah his portion in the Holy Land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, O all flesh, before Yahuwah, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. And he showed me Joshua. Now, that's the transliteration, Joshua. When you look in the Hebrew, it's Yeshua. So it's the same name as our Savior, Yeshua. <clears throat> Which has always intrigued me, like why they chose to transliterate our Savior as Jesus uh, from the Greek Iesus. And I, I, the only reason, the conclusion I could came to is that they're trying to differentiate because both Joshua of of the time of the book of Exodus and uh, in, 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 into the book of Joshua uh, has the same name, Yeshua, named by Moses, Yehoshua, the long form. <coughs> uh, but they transliterated his name, Joshua, and then they transliterated the same exact name, Jesus. And I think the reason they did that is to is to make a differentiation between the two. But at any rate, this is a, a high priest at the time here uh, that Zechariah is prophesying anyway, uh, who has the same name, Yeshua. <clears throat> so I'll use that name. Uh, and he showed me Yeshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, which I believe is Yeshua, <laughs> the Savior, and Satan standing at his right hand to assist him, to resist him. And Yeshua said unto Satan, Yahuwah rebuked thee, O Satan, even Yahuwah that hath chosen Jerusalem, Jerusalem rebuked thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Yeshua was clothed with filthy garments, and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of Yahuwah protested unto Yeshua, saying, Thus saith Yahuwah of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house. So that's interesting. This character is is going to judge his house. That's what That's the purpose of this particular character. And shall also keep my courts. Hmm. Courts of the Gentiles, maybe, included. And I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. 
Hear now, O Yeshua the high priest, thou and thy fellow, fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Now that's that's the other Yeshua, the branch. That's uh, Messiah ben David, Messiah ben Joseph, the Savior. <clears throat> uh, the branch from Jesse. And behold, the stone that I have laid before Yeshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the engraving thereof, saith Yehua of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith Yehua of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. And the angel that talked with me came again and walked me as a man that is, or waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep, and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick of all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my lord? Then the angel that I talked with, that, that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of Yahuwah unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith Yahuwah of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, be, be, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of Yahuwah came unto me, saying, So this is the word of the Lord. Who is the word of the Lord? That's Yeshua. <clears throat> came unto him, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that Yahuwah of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice, and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of Yahuwah, which run to and fro through the whole earth. Then answered I, and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick, and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again, and said unto him, What be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones which stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Hmm. Let's do a little comparison here. These are the two anointed ones which stand by the Lord of the whole earth. We're talking about lampstands and olive trees. Revelation 11. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the whole earth. Two anointed ones standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Seems to me there's no question here if we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. That's who the two witnesses are. You know, and now I know that there's a lot of other ancient and rabbinic texts and stuff like that that specify Enoch and Elijah. And that may be true too. Uh, we know that Elijah is coming back, you know, uh, when we read the book of Malachi, right? But I maintain, so what? <laughs> you know, uh, why couldn't they come back? You know, these are the two witnesses that are specifically called the olive trees and all, and 
uh, lampstands and all that to stand before the Lord of the whole earth according to Scripture. If I allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, these are the two witnesses. But that doesn't prohibit Elijah from coming back also. So Elijah could just as easily come back and be a third person, and maybe even Enoch could come back too. I don't know. But, you know, when I first looked at this, I'm going, well, it's just, in my simple mind, seems to be the Bible just told you who the two witnesses are by name. Yeah, I've been uh, really thinking about the two witnesses topic recently, and uh, I, I stumbled across a, a new theory that I hadn't previously heard, and uh, it was the premise that uh, the the two witnesses, um, it, it, it was more the ecclesiastic perspective. I, I really am rooting for two actual people showing up, but uh, the premise was basically that in the book of Revelation, you have uh, the churches are also called lampstands. And uh, you, you have uh, only two of the churches in the book of Revelation are actually uh, aren't reprimanded. They're you're commended. Right. So you have the you know, two of the seven lampstands are actually shining their light. And uh, and the whole premise that um, the two witnesses, uh, I've heard the ecclesiastic position that it's uh, groups of it's like Ephraim and Judah. Right. Like the two mm-hmm. branch branches come together like Jews and Gentiles. Um, you know, I've heard different perspectives on groups of people, but, um, the perspective that it's actually the church of Philadelphia types and the church of Smyrna types, uh, is something new. I've actually stumbled across, uh, because those are the only two churches that are really, uh, kind of, uh, promised, um, uh, you know, to get the crown, crown if they stay true and and the other churches are really reprimanded but some of the same languages we have in those uh churches is what you just read here in this tour portion uh in zechariah uh, three through four so uh, i wanted to maybe read some of revelation two um because uh it has some parallel language to uh you know the uh what was it it's uh garments being cleaned mm-hmm. and um yeah. there's several other very very uh, prophetic kind of second coming language that's that's in this uh, passage in Zechariah, and the reason I want to read Revelation two and read through some of these churches is because um, uh, those two churches, these two you know commended churches, have the very language that's being mentioned in this passage with the two witnesses, and uh, and I I think it's a uh, we can always learn from the seven churches, but. Um, so I'll just read through, uh, yeah, I'll just read through Revelation 2 real quick. Um, Unto the church of angel, the church of Ephesus, write, These things that he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And has borne and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast less left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come out to thee quickly, and I will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. And this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write. Now this is one of the commended churches that isn't actually rebuked. These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. 
I know thy works and, the tri and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall be not, not be hurt of the second death. And the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, where thou hast dwell, where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, Will I give eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, in the stone a new name therein, written which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. And under the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Nonwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and eat things sacrificed unto idols. I will give her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will give her children with death. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you, I say, unto the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not done this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. But that which you have already hold fast till I come, and he that overcometh keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron at the vessel of my potter, shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father." And I will give him the morning star, and that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And the last uh, two churches here, or three churches here, chapter 3, And unto the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. I know thy works, and thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore... How thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works, behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, 
for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I will come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of the heaven of my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And this is the last church here, and unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works that thou art neither hot nor cold. I would thou wert hot, cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and because cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with thy salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open that door, I will come into him, and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." So uh, there was so many aspects of uh, those churches that are uh, parallels here in this Zechariah passage. Now, I'm a particular fan of Zechariah chapters one and two. Uh, they're they're uh, the whole crux of my uh, mystery of the wilderness, um, America's role in biblical prophecy argument. Like my my whole theory and and uh, uh, position on that those two chapters. And so um, it's so awesome that. Uh, kind of, you know, those first two chapters of Zechariah really do kind of characterize uh, a time period of accounting and a measuring of the tribes of Israel worldwide almost. But this is all before the day of the Lord um, mentioned here right at the end of chapter two, be silent all flesh before the Lord for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And then we have chapter three and four which is so fascinating because it's uh, all about this high priest Yeshua, you know, Yehushua and um, and man just so so many interesting things here uh, but uh, what what parallels did you see um, between the churches and and this passage in Zechariah because there there's a lot and it's almost like the same message and things that are Yehushua the prophet, you know, the priest is talking about here in Zechariah are some of the, you know, the very languages that's been used in the message that uh, came from the Messiah in the book of Revelation. That's interesting. I, I, I had not heard that take before. Um, I'm with you. I'm of the opinion that it's two actual people, that it's not talking about, well, first of all, to say Jews and Gentiles would be an oxymoron because Gentiles don't care about God. They don't, they're not, they're, you can't be a Gentile believer. That's an oxymoron. A, a Gentile is someone who is out of covenant with God. When you become a believer, you become a believer who was of the Gentiles. You know that's why I appreciate the King James when it says the believers who are of the Gentiles. 
yeah, they were believers who came from Gentiles. They're no longer Gentiles because why? Romans 7 through 11 tells you that they got, if you become a believer, you cross over. That's what the word Hebrew means, crossing over. You crossed over from being out of covenant to being in covenant and being now heirs to the blessings of Abraham through adoption and brought in as a legal immigrant into the commonwealth of Israel, grafted into the cultivated olive tree that is Israel. So there is a camp of people out there who want to teach the two witnesses or maybe the Jews and the Gentiles. That don't work. <laughs> you know, um, some say that it's Ephraim and Judah. That doesn't work either. I mean, if you just read the language there, I mean, in Revelation chapter 11, it's talking about two people. People. <laughs> How do you kill two nations in the streets of Jerusalem? <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're going to take the idea that, you know, Ephraim and Judah, that, you know, as nations... How do you kill two nations in the street and, you know, leave them, leave them dead in the street? Two nations in one city. None of the language of, Roman, of Revelation chapter 11 lends itself, to, in my mind anyway, to any other interpretation other than two people. So I've always rejected any of that stuff. Now, that said, um, I can appreciate in drawing interesting parallels like what you just described. I've never spent any time really thinking about that. So you, know, you saying it's the first time I've heard it. So, uh, you know, I, it is intriguing, I think. Yeah, just a, just a recent kind of perspective on a, an eschatological topic that I've heard many different takes on, you know, and, and uh, you know, two literal people is uh, really uh, pretty much the most explicit way we can interpret the book of Revelation because they're literally laying in the streets and they literally speak fire out of their mouth and there's literal... You know, so, you know, you can't really get around some of that language um, no. because it, it can't be metaphorical. Um, but, uh, you, you know, I, I do think it's cool, you know, of seven churches, you know, they're also called lampstands, just as the two witnesses are. Mm -hmm. Two of those yeah. churches are kind of commended, letting their light shine, being two witnesses. And we also have in Jeremiah, um, uh, Jeremiah chapter three, uh, another premise of two witnesses. And I'd love to bring that out for uh, people is... Uh, um, this is uh, something I stumbled across recently, and, and it, I, I think it's a, a kind of a, uh, a prophetic passage for uh, the time of the Ephraim awakening, time of you know people realizing the ancient paths. Just like at the end of Deuteronomy, he promised, you know, we'd wake up amongst the nations and want to come back, right? And when you come back, you know, and we start to keep and obey again, you know, significant things, you know, unfold from that, and so. Um, Jeremiah 3 uh, is the whole passage that talks about how a man, if he puts away his wife, you know, and, and you know, the, the whole, you know, identity crisis uh, promise of reaccepting these idolatrous people that have gone away from the covenants of Yah um, and bringing them back into covenant. But it says here, um, let me, uh, so it says, go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you. And I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge thine iniquity that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, hast scattered thy way to the stranger under every green tree, and ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Turn, O backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Um, so this, the, this two witness 
premise, I wanted to point out, uh, you know, in this passage, particularly in verse 14, is that uh, the the whole matter being established by two or more witnesses is very scriptural, very biblical. Um, this is something that we have set up, you know, uh, in the Torah. But um, if he promises to wake them up, one of a city, that in itself, you know, the, the premise sounds very spread out, right? Like one person in a city that, you know, that that's not very much, but also, you know, worldwide, that could be a significant type of awakening. But he does say two of a family. So you have two people per clan, per family, right, per tribe of family, uh, who realize and are restored to these ancient paths. They, they, uh, they are drawn back um, and taken by Yah during this harvest, you know, these people that realize and perhaps want to follow after and, and uh, keep the commandments again, they're woken up two by family. And when you have two people per family, those two can be two witnesses in the family to then come and present this case of righteousness to the rest of their clan so that a matter can be established for the family, so that all families of the earth, you know, if, if this is a prophetic language of the regathering, you know, the the promise, you know, of him drawing back and giving pastors according to his heart and understanding, um, then it's just so awesome that it, he promises that within each family there's going to be a type of two witnesses that can then establish this matter of restoring righteousness and returning to the paths of the Most High. Um, and so I just wanted to point that out. Is uh, It's another you know little example of uh, two witnesses being used in a prophetic sense. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff to consider. I was looking at uh, Jeremiah 3 as you were talking about it there. And look, I mean, I, I love listening to other people's opinions and uh, considering things I hadn't thought of before. But there's a group out there that's trying to say that the New Jerusalem, the city, the, the brick and mortar, is the is the bride. Now, yes, Revelation does say, behold, this, you know, as the city's coming down, behold the bride of Christ. But is it the city, the brick and mortar? Is it the land? Is it Zion? Or is it the people that dwell in the land and in the city? Uh, I know you maintain, as I do, that it's the people and I don't know how you get around the language of Jeremiah 3. I mean, really. I mean, uh, he talks about divorcing uh, right there in Jeremiah 3, 8. Uh, then I saw for all the causes for which backsliding Israel, is that talking about brick and mortar? Is that talking about land? Did, did land commit adultery or the people? The people put away, the, the people committed adultery, so they were put away in a certificate of divorce. Uh, I mean, that's the entire book of Hosea. Hosea is meant to describe what's going on, you know, with, with Israel and Judah that uh, is being spoken about here in Jeremiah. And, I mean, if you have any doubt about it, who the bride is, it tells you in verse 14, <laughs> return, O backsliding children, children, people, not land or brick or mortar or streets of gold, says Yahuwah, for I married you. Well, what is somebody who is married to a man? A bride. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what to do with that. I mean, it's like, I mean, that, that's so simple to me. I don't know why people come up with all kinds of other ideas when there's something. It's point blank right there. I married you people. And there's only one bride. And there's only one bridegroom. Um, and, and But I, I don't know if this was the same for you, but for me... Uh, up until, you know, maybe about a decade or so ago, 
you know, for 40 something years of my life, I had this, this belief in two grooms and two brides, that there was Yahuwah married to Israel and Yeshua or Jesus married to the church. Um, and of course in that dispensational, largely pre-trib rapture camp mentality, uh, you have this idea that, that Jesus is married to the church, but he's going to rapture the church out and then dad's going to beat his wife to death. You know, he's going to beat the snot out of his wife for seven years until his wife repents. You know, it was always like they would never word it that way, but that's exactly what they believe. They believe that the church would be raptured out, the bride of Christ would be raptured out. And then meanwhile, you know, the tribulation was to, you know, get the Jews to repent. So, you know, it was all about God pouring out his wrath on them. It was very anti-Semitic, frankly. I mean, the the whole mentality is extremely anti-Semitic. Um, but it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it doesn't hold up to the entire narrative of Scripture. It just doesn't. They have to be. There has to be one bride and one groom, and which means Yeshua and Yahuwah got to be the same guy. It's got to be the the same entity. Um, now, I say that knowing full well that there is a a differentiation between Yahuwah and Yeshua. The, but the way I understand it as in simple terms as simple as I can really articulate it is my hand is not Rob yet it is you could take a sample of blood or DNA from my hand and it's going to spell out me it's me but guess what my hand doesn't do anything except my brain tells it to do something if my hand starts going around doing stuff on its own, I've got a problem. <laughs> you can like stop this crazy thing, cousin it. <laughs> like you know, stop it. <laughs> what did Yeshua say though? I, I only say what my father says. I only do what my father does. Right? How many times did he say that? Me and my father are one, and I'm sitting at the right hand of the father. Well, when I put my hand right here on my chair, if my chair was a throne. Where would my hand be? It'd be at the right hand of Rob, right? So I believe that Yahuwah, in his creative way, as only he can do, he gave animated life to his hand in in the flesh as Yeshua, and he took a bride for himself. But I believe that he was, and, and the Targums tell you this point blank. I mean, we're missing it in the King James or, frankly, any other English language for the most part. But the Targums come right out and tell you that it was the word of the Lord that came down at Mount Sinai and did this, that, and the other thing. The word of the Lord. Well, John tells you who the word of the Lord is. The word in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? So then, therefore, everything that we're hearing here in the Scripture, whenever Yahuwah is interacting with humans, he does so through the, his mighty right hand, which is his salvation. And he tells you, my, my, I saved you with a mighty right hand. And, you know, my hand, my hand is my salvation. Well, his hand is his what? Yeshua. That's the word, the Hebrew word for salvation. So we have scripture telling you that his right hand is his salvation. So I just go, okay. So for me, growing up in, in Baptist theology for my whole life, you know, Trinitarian doctrine, that there's three people up there with three thrones, even though you never see anything about the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit's name? Where's the Holy Spirit's throne? You don't get any of that. I just I just look at the scripture and it says that the, the, the Ruach, the word itself, Ruach in Hebrew, means breath, 
wind, spirit. The equivalent in the New Testament is pneuma. Same definition. Breath, wind, spirit. So I go, okay. For me, it's so simple that their hero Israel, Yahuwah, your God, is one. There's one. One. Not three. Not seven. Not what? Seven plus ten. Not ten. Because <laughs> you have the seven spirits of God, too, that we see in, in, in both Isaiah and Revelation. Right? Seven spirits of God. So how many? Do we have a pantheon up there? If there's the seven spirits of God, they're also holy because God is holy. So you'd have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the seven other holy spirits. So what do you got? Ten up there? No. <laughs> this, to me, it's so it's so much easier to distill using Scripture itself to define itself, not church dogma, not the edict of a Mithra worshiper telling you <laughs> how to understand our God in 300 A.D. Take all that out and just let Scripture speak for itself. You have one entity whose breath is this powerful, life-giving force, his breath, wind, spirit, who has a right hand through which he interacts with people, and he married a people group called Israel. You have one entity, one bride, one simple story. It's only theologians that screw it all up, in my opinion. And I know you did a debate on that uh, recently on the whole issue of uh, yeah the bride. I don't know. I yeah, mean, the, Jeremiah three is like <laughs> pretty much a slam dunk right there. Three fourteen. Yeah, the big argument uh, or the big word that people can put in their tool belt is anthropomorphic expression. Ooh. And anthropomorphic expression <laughs> is when Yah Almighty, you know, outside of our comprehension, our understanding uses uh, analogies and pictures and similitudes uh, that we can understand in our finite human comprehension. And generally, he uses these anthropomorphic expressions uh, uh, that are geared around our most base uh, functions in life, which is family, which is marriage, uh, childhood, you know, parenting and child, you know, for him to use the, these things is him coming down to our level and trying to demonstrate his relationship with us uh, with this stuff. And so uh, with this language, I, I find it interesting. I just wanted to touch on the, the Jerusalem topic. Uh, I believe that it's, it's, it's a combination. It's, uh, he's marrying New Jerusalem, which is comprised of the city and the people that are in the city. It doesn't make sense to just marry brick and mortar, and we actually have a hint of this in uh, just the passage I just read with uh, the Church of Philadelphia. It says in uh, chapter 3, verse 12, Him that overcometh I will make in a pillar, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the New Jerusalem, which is called the Bride, you know, in Revelation when it comes down as a bride adorned for her husband. Well, guess what? There's going to be people walking around with literally like a name tag, New Jerusalem, on their forehead. So um, the the premise of it only being brick and mortar, I, I disagree with. You know, um, the, the way that I can understand they're getting to that perspective is a complete uh, separation between the marriage language and the, you know, the father of the Old Testament who marries the children of Israel and the son who, uh, you know, they've separated that role. Um, but I've come to the perspective that uh, really has been accentuated by these Targum studies where it, 
it's always been the word. It's always been the mediator interacting with mankind from the very beginning. And it's, it's man, I didn't even realize that the Targums, when you read through, mm-hmm. and it, it talks about how, and Yah made a covenant with his word and Noah, and with his word and Abraham, and mm-hmm. his word, and had mercy on them through his word. And I think it even goes to the point of he he shuts the door of the ark with through his word. Like, just so many different things. Uh, little things there where um, I can totally get now how Yeshua could have been walking down the road, expounding of himself, starting with Moses and the prophets to those those apostles, right? And they didn't recognize him, but somehow he was blowing their minds with these truth bombs of how Yeshua was all throughout, you know, how he himself was throughout the, the Torah and the prophets. Well, if, if they were uh, aware of this similar language that the Targums were using, like mm-hmm. Yehovah's word. And he was saying, that's me, that's me, that's me. And this is, it basically sets up the very first chapter of the book of John. And it totally makes sense now. Like, um, you know, I, I find it interesting that sometimes there's new Testament quotes, like that we can find only in like the extra biblical books. Like, uh, the book of Enoch is the only place that has a description of, of Sheol and the way that, Yeshua's analogy describes, and and the only place we can find out that there's a prohibition against angels marrying, and is found in this extra biblical book, right? Well, uh, you know what? What if it's you know this same concept is, um, you know, we can find an expansion on where the book of John got this premise of the Word that was made flesh, and it was through the Word always being the one who had interacted and med- mediated. Uh, to mankind from the very beginning, which also really helps me kind of wrap my mind around the redemption plan for people who are in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, because they were always looking forward to the mediation uh, uh, or the mediator um, redeeming mankind while we look back to the mediator who redeemed mankind, you know, Um, because, you know, uh, just... Just a fascinating thing. I, I know I kind of get on a little rabbit trail here, but you know this Jeremiah three passage uh, that that talks about the marriage of of the people. The reason that language is significant, and I think, uh, whenever we get too hyper focused on the marriage language, we're like, oh well, Jesus isn't marrying millions of p- people. Like he he's not going to actually consummate a marriage physically. That none of that makes sense. It's a metaphor that's used to describe how we as the church submit our lives and fall under his headship as the bride of Christ, right? And that's why it's so important uh, that this analogy, uh, you know, is is really actually, you know, looked out and, and, and tested. Um, and if it's proven to be true, it is truly, you know, one of the most beautiful analogies we can understand our relationship with the Most High through, uh, because the the marriage analogy of a, a woman submitting lovingly to the commandments and lovingly, um, you know, obeying her headship, um, that demonstrates a relationship that the father uh, wants to have with us, and he uses that marriage al- analogy. So, who who's our best example as a man? Who whose headship or who whose perfect example should we follow? Well, it's the the Son of God, Yahushua, right? And so whenever we align our lives and fall under his headship as a bride submits herself to her husband, uh, then, you know, we, we're following his leadership. And that's why we would be the bride of Christ, not just, you know, the bride of God, because he's our uh, example on earth 
of how to walk out. So he's he's got to show us. So the the example we have in the New Testament concept is that, uh, you know, men, you know, love your wives as Christ loved the church, you know, sacrificing, you know, for the church. And so, you know, if the whole analogy is just totally uh, destroyed if we remove the fact that, uh, you know, the bridal language between believers marrying into covenant with the Most High can be likened to, you know, a an actual uh, marriage process because what this, you know, new concept has, I know we're spending a little bit of time on this, but um, if, if it's just brothers and sisters, then that metaphor doesn't necessarily apply anymore, right? Well, you know, it, it can go either way, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, sometimes these conversations take us into uh, dangerous territory where people want to call you a heretic and freak out on you. And look, I, as it says in the beginning of this, I'm not your teacher. Neither one of us are your teacher. We're just a couple of students discussing what we think and we understand from the scriptures. Don't believe us. Look it up for yourself. These are just the conclusions that we've come to. Um, so we're not telling you what to believe. We're simply telling you what we've come to believe. Uh, and in that regard... I would point you to, with regard to some of the things I said earlier, because I know there's sound bites in there somebody's going to grab <laughs> and send. There'll be videos out this week, probably. Um, this conversation I had with Doug Hamp back in uh, 2013, uh, Quest for Truth, episode 14. You can go to questfortruth.net. That's the number four quest and the number four truth.net. Scroll down to week 14. This is uh, we we discussed this at some length about the the nature of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit in particular in this episode, and um, you know look let me just say I believe there's there is a Father, there is a Son, there is a Holy Spirit. That's three tri that are in unity, tri unity, Trinity. I believe in the Trinity. If with that definition, that's where I leave it. You know, the definition that was given to us by a Mithra worshiper under pain of death that we have to believe, I don't believe. That's the one that I reject. Um, But if you want more understanding of the Holy Spirit um, as the breath, wind, spirit, uh, there's a rather lengthy explanation for all that using Scripture to uh, explain the position. So you can certainly check that out. And also on the Ephraim Awakenings website ephraimawakening.com scroll down and right on the front page you'll see the right hand of Yahuwah is salvation and that's this blog right here the right hand of Yahuwah is salvation using scripture once again to show you that Yeshua is the physical right hand of the Father Uh, so you can look at those for yourself again I'm not telling you what to believe I'm just telling you what I have come to believe and why I'll put those links in the chat room again for you uh, because those are controversial topics for sure and you know as it pertains to the bride you know I'm with you man I mean it's the people I mean Jeremiah 3 tells you point blank I mean I don't know (laughs) why do I need to go any further right Um, I will I will say though in that regard um, you know, because it says, what's the saying? It is the mark of an intelligent mind to entertain a thought without accepting it. You know, allow yourself to investigate a matter, hear the other side, listen to the other point of view. Um, and I did. I've listened to many hours worth of the other point of view. 
and I just found myself going, well, yeah, but, well, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, <laughs> with every yeah, but, this is why I refused to get into the debate, because I knew, like, every yeah, but would send us into weeks of discussion <laughs> that I don't have time to do right now. Uh, to me, it's just, look, one bride that that was divorced, that was redeemed, and we have these portions to help us understand these things, and, and specifically this portion, Yeshua as the Redeemer, <laughs> you know, uh, it just it, it simplifies the whole thing a whole lot, at least for me anyway. Uh, any parting thoughts? Yeah, one, one just quick one. Here's another little thought on the whole bridal uh, language. Uh, what is the difference between the bride and the wedding guest, right? Um, well, you have uh, per- perhaps a dichotomy being shown with the churches. Is there a difference um, in the reward uh, on those who have to go through tribulation and those who are preserved in the wilderness, that bride brought into the wilderness? Um, this is all significant language, you know, because, uh, you know, Eve was was drawn from the rib of Adam, and the rib you know, comes from, you know, the place closest to his heart, right? So the, the bride is drawn from the body, right? But you have the body of Christ, which is all of the church in general. And so the question is, is, is the woman, the bride who is drawn into the wilderness, uh, according to Revelation, um, uh, and preserved there from the dragon, you know, is she, you know, is she a group of believers that are considered the bride, while there's also believers that are saved for his namesake, uh, and that still make it into the kingdom, but perhaps had to go through tribulation and judgment. So is there a dichotomy between believers in the end times of those who are the wise virgins that get to go into the wedding feast and those that are the foolish virgins that, you know, don't get in at all? So, you know, there's different groups here that we can talk about. And, and uh, you know, it could perhaps the 144,000 be the bride, you know, and then, of course, there's wedding guests. You know, there are mm-hmm. many different ways of looking at this, um, but I think all of them— you know, are, are worth discussing. And bottom line, you know, we want to be those people that would be considered the bride and not just the servants. And I think that's mm-hmm. the bottom line here that we can get out of this is, you know, don't have the mindset of you just, you know, you just want to make it in to be, you know, fire insurance. You know, that would be the mindset of a servant, right? Uh, but it says in the book of Hosea that he's going to take the way the the names of Balim out of their mouth where they don't call him Lord anymore, but they call him husband or Ishi. Mm-hmm. And it describes a totally different relationship, um, which, you know, I think we should all be in the mindset of is how do we have the bride mindset and not the servant mindset where I'm keeping his commandments because I love him, not not just doing it because you have to or just because you're forced to. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's a love relationship you're seeking for is a, a changed heart that desires to keep his ways, not just begrudgingly has to do it. And that's for me. Uh, if there is any division in the body of believers between who would be considered bridal type people, the bride that's preserved in the wilderness, like uh, the Church of Philadelphia is the one promise to be kept from the hour of temptation. Well, uh, you know, it seems to me like uh, the the churches that were rebuked were just going through the motions, right? They didn't have their heart behind it. But the churches that weren't rebuked and they were commended, they were all 100% in on it. And uh, and he's just encouraged them to stay strong to the end. And those are the ones that get the great reward. And so we want to have bridal language, no matter if, you know, bridal thought process in the way that we pursue after the Most High. Yeah, amen. Uh, somebody in the chat room was pointing out the uh, Ten Virgins story. And it was looking at the the, vir- the the parable of the ten virgins that made me understand what I referred to as the p- 
plurality of the bride. We have this anthropomorphic language that is used all throughout the scriptures. Um, Paul talks about us being the body of Christ, right? We are told that we are his children, right? Uh, we are his bride. They're all, each one of these are terms of endearment. They're, they're just phrases used to help convey a different aspect of the intimate relationship that we have with him. Um, you know, Paul talks about the, the, the body of Christ having many parts. You know, the hand shouldn't save it to the foot. I have no need of you, right? Each part of the body, you know, the body's made up of many parts, and each part has a different function, but each part is part of, it makes up the whole. You know, so if we think of the body, if we use that analogy, there's a plurality to the body. There, the, the parable of the ten virgins is another way of conveying it. When I was looking at the parable of the ten virgins, I'm going, well, wait a minute. Virgins are pure. They haven't yet been defiled, and they're looking for the bridegroom. There's only one people group on earth that fits that description, and those are believers. Now, we are not pure of anything of our own, you know, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short. We've all sinned, but we are made pure by the blood of the Lamb. So our purity, our virginity, if you will, has been granted to us through Christ's blood, right? So we are made pure through him, and we are waiting for him for the bridegroom. So all ten have to be believers in my mind. I mean, there's no other way for me to make sense of that story. You know, uh, once again, there's no one pure apart from those who have been washed in the blood of Christ, and and no one but believers are waiting for the bridegroom to return. So um, then you have, so you have five that go in, in, not up, by the way, in with the groom, and five that are left out. So I, I'm in agreement with you that there are, there's, in the, in the concept of the plurality of the bride, there's going to be different aspects of, of shall we say, intimacy that, that we'll, we will uh, be able to benefit from, um, and I, I'm not. I don't mean to say this thinking about sex. Okay, so people need to take that out of your mind. But that same type of language is used. You know, when when a, a man marries a woman and he goes into her, what the scripture talks about, and he knew his wife, right? Well, you also have scripture where where, where there are people who are saying, "Well, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that?" And what does Yeshua say? Depart from me, I never knew you. Now, it's not talking about sex. But there's an intimacy level of knowing that's being conveyed in my mind, anyway, my opinion. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I think it's a complex matter. I don't certainly make any claim to have it all understood and you know have the corner on it. Not at all. Um, that's why I appreciate having these conversations. Um, I I just think that we don't need to get so hung up on the terminology because if you do, then you, what is he marrying himself? If we're the body of Christ, well, how do you marry yourself? Or if it's, if we're his children, what are we talking about incest? Yeah. I mean, you could get real wrapped up into wonkyville, <laughs> you know, if you get too literal with these things, I, I, I understand these things as literal metaphors. If that, if that makes sense that these, these are, again, these are terms of endearment, different phrases used to convey different aspects of our relationship and intimacy with him. At least that's, that's the way I take it. All right. Um, so with that, uh, you have anything else you want to share or are we done here? Oh yeah, that's pretty much all. All right. Then I will close us out with the, uh, blessing, the priestly blessing that we see in numbers chapter six, 
right? Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. Yahuwah make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance unto you and give you peace. Peace otherwise known as shalom. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Shabbat shalom.